3: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host. People
0: of Peril, attention. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders network Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours I'm transmissions I'm waiting to be found building rockets
4: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody welcome, hello and welcome to Show 520. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. This cold has still got its claws in me. Weeks, man, it's been bloody weeks. But you know, fighter, as always, fighting on. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We've got two stories, two short fiction. First one is... What You Can Change by Michael Haynes. Then our next bit of fiction is A Wrinkle Ironed Out by Alison Wilgus. That is all coming today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Couple of things to mention. Big thank you if you've come over to Patreon and you're listening to the serial and you've signed up for that. We are now in week three of that serial by Silverberg. And thank you for the emails, you know, and the messages just saying what it's like. So. That, that means a lot to us, thank you so much. Don't forget this show if you want to listen to it, it is ad free over on Perion as well, just one dollar for that little privilege. And gonna, I did an interview if you remember, our aims was a hundred. And Amy, in our interview over on that, um, in, per, um in, in Perion, we talked about I asked Amy, you know, what what she was watching, what TV. I think, oh, I think somebody else asked her what TV she was watching. Now, Amy mentioned this program on Netflix called The Dark. And I I remembered slightly. So I put this The Dark on Netflix and it was German. And, and you know, like three minutes in, I'm like subtitled German. And I'm like, this is more like a crime. Do you know what I mean? This can of be so... I goes back into Discord and I ask Amy, you know, and yes, that's it. And Amy was saying, the best science fiction last year by a mile. So I went, oh, well, you know what I mean, I might have been wrong, hasty. Goes back in, oh, man, if you haven't watched it, watch The Dark. I'm now on to show number, I think it's number three I'm on to. And it's got that vibe of the 80s in there as well, but there's, oh man, it's time travel, it's dark, it's scary, and I don't like scary, you know what I mean? I'm like, my little fingers are gripped tight, you know what I mean, white knuckles there. Sometimes it just gets a little bit for me. But watch the dark. It's like, say, I'd... I followed Amy's example. Amy asks, says, "Just watch it in German, but with English subtitles. You can get it where with with Netflix, where you can you can put your you know put the English dubbed over, and it doesn't it just doesn't sound right. It's you know what I mean. It's, they've tried their best, but it's a bit like me editing. You know what I mean? It's just, there's always going to be spots you can see." So I just watched it with the subtitles and within minutes you've lost them and you're just into the character. Yes, thoroughly re- recommend The Dark. And he has one more recommendation because it is constantly on. I've got one of those Google, you know, the Google Home. Now, hey, Google, can you, you do this, do this little speaker? Well, I'm constantly playing the Guardians of the Galaxy Playlist on Spotify. Man, it's just fantastic. And it's on all the time. The whole family's playing this Guardians of the Galaxy Spotify playlist. Go and listen to that if you got Spotify. Just fantastic. There you go. Let's get into some fiction then. First up is a little bit of short fiction, A Wrinkle Ironed Out by Alison Wilgus. I think that's how you pronounce Alison, your surname. Originally published in Daily Science Fiction. Alison is a Brooklyn-based writer for comics and prose, with graphic novels both recent and upcoming about human spaceflight, aviation and time travel. Alas, not in the same time. From tour and First Second Books. Her short fiction has previously appeared in or on Strange Horizons, Terraform and, <clears throat> excuse me, daily science fiction. Although her proudest recent prose accomplishment was having been paid to write about Jean-Luc Picard and Ellen Ripley hooking up at a conference. How cool is that? She tweets at Ali Wigness, Wilgis. I think that's it. And you can find her in her comics and stories at, and there's a, there's a link there to Alison's site as well. This story is narrated, would you believe, by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. I'll give you the full bio on Miss Miss Sturgis. Amy is, or holds a PhD in intellectual history from the Vanderbilt University and specialises in both science fiction and indigenous American studies. Since 2008, she has been contributing monthly looking back at genre history to the Starship over. So Editor-in-chief of Hocus Pocus Comics and faculty at Linear Rye University. Sturgis lives with her husband in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, soon to be moving away. Yes, she's moving from there. And there'll be a link on the AM site as well if you want to go over and see. hello. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present A Wrinkle Ironed Out by Alison Wilgus.
3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Ada lies on her back, her face inches from the cathedral ceiling, and dabs at soot with moistened cotton swabs. The left elbow of the Virgin Mary looms above her, a patch of rich blue pigment emerging, the latest in a blossoming field of color she's coaxed out of the gloom. When Ada was a child, a project like this would have warranted a team of conservators, a documentary film crew, a commemorative book of befores and afters. In her adulthood, the calm has settled over earth like a woolen blanket— And our interests have shriveled and retreated to our doorsteps, our driveways, to rooms with curtains drawn. The cathedral no longer holds services, and Ada tends to its treasures alone and unobserved. Or she did, for a time, some months ago when an angry handful organized themselves enough to launch artillery into orbit. The calm ground an acre of their makeshift barracks into a smear of dust and blood— Now three hundred self-determined soldiers shelter beneath the cathedral, watched over by a host of marble angels, and by Ada on her platform, listening to their boots shuff on the stairs down to the catacombs. Ada, who sits in the deanery with a girlhood friend, she dressed in frayed coveralls, and he tucked neatly into an olive jacket. "'They know you're all down there,' Ada says." Tom sips his wine, his eyes still on the paper map he's laid out on the table. Nice of them to tell you. The air feels different, thicker. Oh, well then. It's just the same as last time, she says. She visited the barracks, too, and sat inside those small boxes of corrugated metal. She remembers how it felt to breathe, the soupy, viscous weight in her lungs, She picks at her cuticles and adds, They've known for weeks. And for weeks they haven't done anything, he says, patient. The mill would be better. Thicker walls. Harder to see from above. Tom folds the map and leans back in his chair. Ada, this isn't a problem that needs fixing. They're not going to hit the cathedral. It's a landmark. Practically a museum. Tom, they understand cause and effect. If they flatten this place, there'll be riots people are sentimental about. He crosses himself sarcastically. Ada's fingers twist in her lap. It's math to them, she says. You've overloaded one side of the equation. Oh, Ada. He smiles in a way he must think is reassuring. So handsome and younger even than her. Brown eyes that charm with crinkled corners, a face no one refuses. Even if the worst happens, we'd survive well enough. We'll stay in the catacombs. The building wouldn't collapse that far down, and there's a tunnel out the back. Ada's breath hitches at this, and she holds a hand up to her mouth as a tide of panic rises inside her. Tom reaches for her other hand and brings it to his lips. I'm going to be fine, he says. The calm has been orbiting Earth for nearly 30 years. Ada is old enough to remember what things used to be like, how she felt when we were still a solitary spark of life. But she thinks of those days very little the calm smooths any wrinkles of resistance, plodding and relentless, an indifferent weight which irons human lives into something easy and straightforward, convenient, into a version of Earth which an alien mind can manage and understand. Tom is a wrinkle. Ada pulls her hand out of his grip. They know, she says again. You can't stay here. He sighs. It's not my decision to make. Of course it is. Ada, as soon as you send up the next rocket, they'll... Ada! He stands, the map tucked under his arm. Even frowning his face is a warm welcome. I'm sorry to have to put you in this position, but it's my duty as an officer to follow orders. And my orders in this case are very clear. He isn't an officer. There is no army anymore. She tears away a hangnail, exposing unfinished skin that burns as it cringes from the air. You're making yourselves worth the trouble. He rests his palm on top of her head. You're tired, he says, and leaves her alone with the dread in her stomach. Earth is a depot, conveniently located along a trading route, gravity well of manageable depth, comfortable distance from a non-threatening sun, moon regolith to melt into glass and aluminum, plenty of water, occasionally useful infrastructure. The calm pays as little attention as it can to what we do. Unrest of any scale will spark a dim awareness, focusing a fraction with every bombing, each demonstration. The calm thickens the air with the weight of their attention, a creeping syrupy slide until the moment, outside of our understanding, when a line is crossed, when even from geosynchronous distance the granularity of their view reveals a bump of sufficient size, and that bump triggers the calm's only reply to inconvenience. They flatten with shockwaves pulsed from orbit, great pistons of air which crush entire buildings and everything inside them, which erase whole city blocks along with all their harbored problems. Tom and his garrison are a bump. Ada cleans greasy dust from the Virgin's wrist. The air is like water in her lungs. The catacombs are older than the structures above them, layered with centuries of Roman dead and the works left to honor them. Underground frescoes, spotted and cracked for many lifetimes of dampness and neglect, haunt Ada's conscience. They're dissolving even faster now in a haze of hot, wet breath and cigarette smoke, and her fingers twitch when she thinks of them. The tunnels are crammed with soldiers and their business. There isn't room enough for her to work. There isn't room enough to live, either, not properly. And sometimes Tom's brothers and sisters-in-arms are coughed up into the nave, restless and starved for new scenery. They open the main doors and sit on folding chairs in a pool of sunlight as dust from the square blows in around their feet. And they talk. Ada is on her back beneath the ceiling and cannot see these people, but she can listen, however little they seem to care about that. She knows so much about these breathing, sweating, laughing strangers. Most of them half her age. All of them alive and desperate to matter. It'll never reach orbit. Yeah, well, you'll see. They'll pound the whole facility as soon as we launch. Boom! A sharp crack of someone slapping their thigh. We'll be gone by then. It's all remote. I'm telling you, this shit isn't fucking around. Ada dips the end of a cotton swab into distilled water, moves it through syrupy air toward the ceiling, brushes away a few particles of grime. Her heart leaps against her breastbone, throws itself toward the ailing treasure of plaster and pigment which has consumed her life. The Gas Mask is the hardest thing to find. She manages to scavenge one from the old bomb shelter under the deanery and wrestles with stiff leather straps until it sits as it should. The lenses hold the room at glassy distance. Everything else waits on the dusty shelves of a supply closet, bottles of bleach and drain cleaner, a stack of empty paint buckets, a portable fan. She drinks the air in choking gulps. "'Ada is not a large woman. "'She can only move the bodies one at a time, "'dragging them by their arms across the marble floor, "'through the narthex, out into the courtyard. "'Some were able to run as far as the nave before they collapsed. "'Others fell on the stairs into a tangled heap "'which trapped those who followed underground.' Ada takes her time, rests when she has to, plans her approach, as single-minded and methodical with this as she is with all her work. She walks the whole length of the tunnels with a rifle slung over her shoulder. She makes certain it's a thorough job. Out in the sunlight, she arranges their cooling bodies and lines away from trees and benches, as neat as she can manage alone and easy to see from above, easy to count. Much of Tom's skull is missing, his hair and his jacket dark with dried blood, but his face is recognizable. Ada picks up his boots and hauls him into the center of the courtyard, leaving a wet trail across the ground. She opens the plastic briefcase of the remote launch system as wide as it will go and sets it onto Tom's chest. The screen describes a sleeping rocket. Its keyboard is smashed in with the butt of a rifle. She looks up at the azurite sky and breathes deeply of cool, clean air.
4: There you go. Big thank you, Alison. Alison, that was just a truly fantastic story. Man, just in such a short, tight little story there. Thank you so much indeed. And Ames, Ames, Miguel, thank you so much. You are a star. So, next up is the main fiction, What You Can Change by Michael Haynes. Originally published in Kazaka Press... Michael lives in central Ohio, an ardent short story reader and writer. Michael's stories have appeared in publications such as Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, Beneath the Skies and Nature. He is the chair of the Cinevent Classic Film Convention and enjoys photography, geo-coaching and travel. You can find him, and there's a link there as well, and Twitter as well. This story is narrated by Kean McManon. Keen A's, an Irish software engineer in a past life who was world's youngest professional podcaster, ran a radio station and very nearly ended up being a ju- very nearly ended up being a journalist. While he hopes someday to revive his show with Pod Faded many years ago, he now spends most of his free time playing about with cameras and cooking as old microphones and sound desks lurk in the shadows, right at the edge of the eyesight. So, the starship Sova is Very proud present.
5: What You Can Change by Michael Haynes I'm watching you and my father whispering in the kitchen. You're going over the plans yet again. Neither of you look sad. You don't look happy either. I suppose there's that at least. But your faces show determination or maybe resignation. Either way, I had what I had came for. "'Neither of you have been forced down this path, "'so both of you are to blame. "'Down the hall I'm sleeping in my bedroom. "'My twin brother must be sleeping there too, "'the twin that I remembered but you denied. "'Before I was old enough to realise "'that asking wouldn't get me an answer "'would only bring harsh words and long periods of tension, "'I inquired about my brother several times. "'I didn't know he was my brother exactly.' I just remembered another boy, my age and size, who was there with me when I was very young. Those times you always told me that I must be thinking of a cousin of mine. You'd ask my father, What's his name, dear? Your brother's son, the one who lives out east? He'd answer, and you'd say that must be what I was remembering that they had visited for a month one summer when I was four or five. But I was sure you were lying. I wasn't remembering just one summer, I was remembering someone who I had played countless games with and fought epic battles against with our toy soldiers. Someone who had always been there, back to my first memories. The last time I questioned you about him, when I was eight or nine years old, I asked if he had been my brother. Don't be silly, your words were clipped. No one your age is a sibling, you know that. I have what I came for, but I'm still watching. You're both sitting, calm, as your cups of coffee grow cold. How can you be doing this? I want to scream at you, to tell you you shouldn't do it, or if you must, that you should do it to me instead. But you can't change the past. That's how it works. I'm sure I would miss something if I tried to list all of the rules, regulations and laws I was breaking with my unauthorised explorations into the past. The device was not to be used to investigate matters of minor importance which, if looked at objectively, my loss of a brother surely was. Another department rule forbade exploring within the past fifty years. Something about the way the device worked made it easier to go back a thousand years than a few dozen years. Each time I went back I risked damaging the device's inner workings. Explorers were not to be involved with any investigation dealing with their family history, no matter how far back in time. I've worked here twelve years. All that time I fantasised about going back to my early childhood to see if I was wrong, or if you and my father had lied to me. I didn't have the courage though. I had a good job and knew I'd be risking that and more if I broke the rules so I kept to my assignments. I gathered information on old wars, dead societies and forgotten inventions for the researchers who paid us to go back to the past for lost knowledge. When the first symptoms struck me, I thought I was just overdoing it with my running. On the days I wasn't working I ran, often for over 20 kilometres in a day. My legs started bothering me. They felt weak and I was prone to cramps. Other times, muscles would start jumping. Their spasms weren't painful, just annoying. I cut back on the running. My days off were long now and boring. I sat in my apartment watching videos or reading, not anxious to get back to work, but also not enjoying my free time. When the cramps and twitching started in my arms and hands, I went to see a doctor. After analysing my test results, she delivered my diagnosis in a purely clinical manner. I would likely live another four or five years, but the progressive nature of the disease would take away most normal functioning within the next two years. The doctor gave me a pamphlet which explained the disability scoring. At 14 points, I'd be eligible to stop working and receive disability pay. 18 points and I'd be eligible for euthanasia if I so choose, she reminded me. The very next day I took my first private journey and watched my brother and I play on the floor of the bedroom we shared. You're sitting in the kitchen, waiting for my father to come home. I'm playing on the floor, toy soldiers lined up for battle. If I'm curious about where my brother is, I don't show it. Neither of you can see me, of course. The way the device works, I can perceive what is happening here, just as if I were in the room. But I'm not there. My father comes home and picks me up, hugs me. He plays with me for several minutes while you watch. My soldiers overrun his. Then he helps me gather up the toys and put them away. He leads me into another room with promise of letting me watch my favourite video. A short while later, he comes back and sits beside you. It's all taken care of, he tells you. Your body language suggests you don't want to know the details, The two of you had discussed the plans so many times, why revisit it now that it's done? But he tells you everything. He left my brother at a nameless commune before dawn, strapped into a safety seat and sedated. How he visited the district vitals officer and explained there had been a tragedy a few days ago. One of their sons had died in his sleep. The family, he told the officer, chose a simple private burial. He bribed the officer with a money card. It might not have even been necessary, my father said. The officer probably would have understood, but he didn't want to take any chances. I come back into the room, asking if someone will play with me, asking now where my brother is. No one speaks, but you stand up, take me by the hand, and lead me back out of the kitchen. I notice a glistening in your eyes as you and I pass the place from which I'm watching. I rented a car and drove towards where my father had told you the nameless commune stood. Almost forty years later, I knew it might be hard to find my brother. The communes were where people who had opted out or been forced out of society lived. They were cut off from the rest of us, with no access to schools or the communication network, no ability to take jobs or receive medical care. I had no real idea what my brother would look like as an adult other than the thought that he might be tall like myself but have black hair and fervier appearance. Some people say life in the communes harkens back to a simpler time. Maybe that's so, but that simpler time came with a hard manual labour, no medicines to cure infections and a lifespan 30 years shorter than in regular society. I couldn't find the commune when I drove those desolate roads far from the city. I thought maybe I had misunderstood the directions and tried several different routes. My arms grew weary, I expected they soon would begin to tremble, and I had to give up the search for the day. I didn't have the strength for wasted trips. The communes were not officially recognised, but there was still information to be had, if you looked in the right places. I found that I hadn't taken the wrong route. My brother's commune had been struck by a wildfire two years after he was abandoned there. Dozens of people died trying to save the crops and buildings, but the commune was destroyed. My brother, being so young, probably was saved from the flames, and he would have had no role in trying to help fight the fire. But the commune was not rebuilt, and his residents were dispersed to others across the country. The residents were nameless, so there was no record of who was dispersed where. My brother could be anywhere, and I had no hope of finding him. Denied the opportunity to reconnect with my brother in the present, I could only revisit the past. I felt that I had to understand how I came to have a brother, and why you sent him away. I explored our early years. I was present at our birth. Not even you were aware that you carried two children. If it had been detected, one of us would have been eliminated early in your pregnancy. There was a small degree of mercy in the laws that restricted each family to one child, and after my brother and I survived the prenatal scans, no one forced you to give one of us up. Not directly, at least. We weren't identical twins. His hair came in jet black, mine was a dirty blonde. His shoulders were broader, and where I favoured our father's appearance, he favoured yours. These were differences I could see, watching us in teeny fragments of the several years we both lived in our home. There were also differences that no one could see, but they were reported in our genetic analysis report, produced after our third birthday. This report was a precursor to placement in the education system. I had traits suggesting capacity for strong intellectual skills, determination and an athletic nature. My brother's report was less promising. He was likely to mature with a great degree of empathy, but otherwise I outranked him across the board. When it was time for us to go into education, I was to be routed to the schools which would prepare me for profession using my intellect. I might someday be an engineer, a physician or a lawmaker. My brother was assigned to the schools for future tradesmen. There was no shame in this. Society needed people to repair its vehicles, build its great residential towers and keep its sewers functioning properly. But I watched you and my father favour me over my brother in various little ways. My brother's fate was sealed when the time came to actually enrol us in our schools. The government had let us both live, but our family was still only entitled to a single education credit. To send both of us to school, you would have to pay one full tuition. I watched the two of you discuss how to make this happen, but it was obvious from your first discussion that there was no hope of making it work. I don't think either of you wanted to believe that. You thought there would be some way to pull it off. That hopeful attitude didn't last long. Within a week you were asking each other what to do if only one of your sons could go to school. I've returned from the evening when you and my father planned my brother's disappearance and gone directly back into the past to watch my father give my brother away. It's dark and cold. My father's breath fogs the air as he carries my brother in a safety seat up the long path leading to the commune's front porch. He sets my brother's seat down and looks at him for a moment, watching his sleeping breaths. Our father bends down and brushes my brother's hair away from his eyes for the last time. Then he raps on the door twice and jogs away, back down the path, not waiting for an answer to his knock. He passes me and there's no sadness in his eyes. That doesn't matter, though. I've already decided that feelings of sadness or remorse were irrelevant You made the decision together, and that choice is all that I care about. I will avenge my brother. I'm sure that I'm only months from disability status. Every day I feel more tired than the day before. I've stopped running and have progressively more trouble making my hands work the way I need them to. There are times when I find it hard to swallow correctly. I don't have any desire to live like this. This makes me feel weak in a way, knowing that I'd rather die than let the disease progress. I've taken that weakness though and turned it into strength. My illness has given me the strength to balance our family's accounts. It's dark here now, in the real time. I'm outside your house. I have three hypodermics, each loaded with enough medication to knock an adult out for hours. I have other containers filled with flammable chemicals, and I have matches. I have my key to our house, the key I haven't used in three years. Perhaps my brother, the empathetic one, would have been able to accept your choices. Maybe he could have come to the conclusion that, whatever you showed on the outside, the decision must have been corroding you from the inside all these years, and judged that punishment enough. I can't. You're both asleep when I make the injections, and neither of you stirs. I know the drug is fast-acting, so I don't inject myself yet. I have to make sure that the fire isn't going to fail. I pour the chemicals through the small rooms of the house and light the blaze. It spreads faster than I had imagined, but then that's why it destroys so ruthlessly. I have a moment of fear that the flames and smoke will give me pain before the drug takes hold. I go into the room that was my brother's and mine when we were young. It's a study now, so there are no beds. I lay down on the floor. My left arm spasms and it takes me a few seconds extra to give myself the injection. I feel the sting, though, and know that within moments I won't feel anything at all, ever again. You can't change the past. That's how it works. But you can always change the present.
4: And there you go. Big thank you to Michael. Michael and Kian, thank you so much, gentlemen. Both of you, what a story. Yes, always look on the bright side. Yeah. You need a little bit of, you need a little to and fro, you know what I mean, a little good and a little bad, the dark sides, yes, especially with that, the dark that I'm watching. Michael, I enjoy that story, yes, very much indeed. So... That is the Starship Sova. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, don't forget, we are right in the throes of the serial. If you want to pop over there and support that and listen to that, the, the Silverberg one, classic science fiction, done in a classic style. We've got, I've just finished... It will, will finish, or the first season will finish of The Red Dwarf. I've been going through The Red Dwarf. I've just finished now season one. We'll be finishing on Sunday if you want to listen to that. My little commentary and thoughts on the fantastic Red Dwarf. And you'll get this show if you want to do without ads or anything like that. No messing around if you come over to Patreon, So that's a great reason to come over and support and keep this going. Now, I think that's it. Until next week, just like to see it. Good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you
0: by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah, that much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm mooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly. It won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk.